Now please turn with me to Romans 6, 15 through 23. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves to righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, would you come now and help us to understand this text, how it applies to our lives, and how it relates to the matter of global evangelism. I pray you'd help me to make it clear, um, make this text evident in terms of what it says and how it relates to our lives. Give us a passion for freedom that comes through the gospel, and that we might not only be different personally, but we might see the world differently and pray differently and give and go differently. So help us, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we're concluding our three-week series that we call REACH, which is our opportunity to focus our minds and our hearts on what it means to have a vision for the world, particularly what it means to have a vision for unreached people groups. Out in the atrium, there's um, some banners that reflect the 7,000 people groups that, if nothing is done, they'll never hear the name of Jesus. Unreached people are expensive to get to, they're hard to reach, they're unreached for a reason. And during these last couple weeks, we've wanted you to focus on that particular theme because we need to be reminded that there's 2.7 billion people around the world that do not know the name of Jesus. In fact, one of the most strategic things that we do as a church is our Christmas offering. And we use that offering to move the needle, if you will, in trying to be able to reach people who've never heard. When I first came to College Park about uh, seven years ago, six or seven years ago, one of the first things that I did was to go with Nate on a vision trip, and I went to the country of India. And it was then that I just I realized the connection between our giving and our Christmas offering and reaching unreached peoples. I was with Nate at a Christian school, a school that had been started by a seminary with whom we partner, and that school was in the northern region of India. We got to hear the opening assembly, all these children who were uh, saying Bible verses and singing hymns. And I'll never forget standing 
on this balcony overlooking the city when Uncle George, the president of the, the seminary who spoke here two weeks ago, told me, Mark, the significance of this Christian school that College Park helped build is this, that there has never been a gospel witness in this area of India ever, ever. He said, what you are witnessing is the first gospel witness that's ever been brought into this area of my country. In fact, a a Hindu uh, priest or ruler paid tribute to the British government during the days of colonization to guarantee that no missionary would be allowed in that region. And so I'm standing, looking over the city, hearing these children that are milling around in this Christian school, realizing that I'm witnessing the dawn of the gospel spreading into an area of our world that has never heard the name of Jesus. In this school were um, Hindu and Buddhist children of, of leaders in the city who are so desperate for education that they're willing to put their kids in a Christian school because they want education. And so there's a connection between unreached people groups and what we do with our money coming up at the end of the year. We, as a church, we work hard to be sure that our budget is geared towards external ministry. When we built this building, we said that this is for that. We, we want you to keep in your minds and your hearts, not just that you come to church, but that you come with a purpose of mission and vision to be able to reach the world. Next week, um, we'll take a break from Romans and talk to you very specifically about how this is for that as it relates not only to global evangelism, but also to what we have in mind for the area of fishers with a church uh, multiplication site or a, a church plant of sorts. In fact, I'm praying that some of you would realize that this is for that, so you would leave this and go to that to try and help us reach um, people who we're not able to reach in our own city. Today we're in Romans 6. It's not a traditional missions text, but what I want to try and do, and I really hope I do better than I did first service. First service may have been the worst message I've ever preached. So, was, and you can ask the guys at the soundboard, they would, yeah, it was, it was not good. So, I can't wait for lunch today when my kids are going to say, Dad, what happened in first service? I don't know. So I prayed, I've, I've asked the Lord to help me, and I, I hope that he does, because I really don't want it to happen again, at least not so quickly. Um, so, so Romans 6, 15 to 23, is not a traditional missions text. What it talks about is this. It talks about the freedom that is offered to us in Romans 6, and I hope to be able to connect freedom in Romans 6 and also a vision for global evangelism. So my aim is twofold. One, I want to show you what this text says. And then secondly, I want to try and connect it to the matter of foreign evangelism. Now, two weeks ago, we were in this passage. We were looking at verses 12 to 14, and we learned that Paul uses an an analogy that there's a challenger to the throne named sin, sort of like a castle. There's a challenger who wants to overthrow the king in the castle. That challenger's name is sin. He uses desires or passions to infiltrate our lives. And then he controls individual parts of our bodies, and he uses them for evil purposes. And the call in verses 12 to 14 was to not allow this to happen. Don't let sin, this challenger, get into your life by virtue of desires that you believe and buy into. The text ended in verse 14 where it says, Sin will have no dominion over you, 
since you are not under law but under grace. So there's a new dominion, there's a, a new authority, a new constitutional authority, if you will, and that authority is the authority of grace. Then in verses 15 to 23, our text for today, Paul talks about the practical freedom, the practical freedom that comes through justification by faith, this freedom that is meant to really work. In other words, how do you live in this dominion of God's grace from verse 14? How do you make that work? How do you not go back to your former life? So I want to talk about two things relative to freedom. The first is this text shows us that we are free to defeat sin. In other words, the reason why you've been set free is not just to be free from eternal damnation, free from judgment, or to have been given immunity from God's wrath. All of those things are true, but that's not all of the reason why you've been set free. You've also been set free so that your life can be different today. The gospel is not meant just to be something in the future. It's meant to be something that is lived every single day of our lives. Now, verse 15, we have a rhetorical question. Paul says, what then? Are we to continue to sin because we are not under law but under grace? This is a rhetorical question. We've seen another rhetorical question in chapter 6 and verse 1 where Paul asks, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And both answers to both rhetorical questions is no, may it never be, or by no means. The reason Paul is saying this is because there would be some who would charge that his gospel of immunity from judgment or his gospel of grace could mean that somebody could justify just living like a pagan because after all, all of their sins, both past, present, and future, have been forgiven. And so somebody would have charged Paul with preaching a gospel gospel of license you can just do whatever you want right paul says no 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 no. that's not what grace is look at verse 16 it begins his argument by saying this do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves you are slaves of the one whom you obey either either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness. So what Paul is doing is he's framing the discussion about the word freedom. Some would say, Paul, you're talking so much about freedom that you could just justify being sinful. And Paul says, no, no, no. But grace, this dominion of grace, means that we are free not to not just sin. We are free to be sanctified. The followers of Jesus are the ones who, according to this text, actually have the power to defeat sin. They're they're under a new master. They're under a new slave master, if you will. They're under a new owner. And Paul's making the case here that there needs to be a connection between their freedom and who they really are. So the gospel of justification by faith, rightly understood, is supposed to lead toward sanctification, which means that we are made more and more like Christ. We're made more and more righteous. That justification by faith should not lead to more sin. Instead, it should lead to sanctification. Now, to make that point even more evident, Paul uses a metaphor of slavery. That's what we read in verse 16. He says, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? So what he's going to do is he connects the idea of slavery and obedience. Or you could think of it as ownership and obedience. So whoever owns you, 
That's the one you're going to obey. Or if you obey, you're acting as if somebody owns you. Now, the, the illustration of slavery isn't necessarily a great one. It has limits. In fact, if you, if you look at verse 19, he says, I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. In other words, what he's saying is this, this metaphor or this illustration of slavery doesn't hold all that it needs to. It, it, it's imperfect. It's a, it's a natural illustration. But Paul is trying to make something evident here of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And essentially what he's saying is that when you come to faith in Christ, you come under the reign and the rule of a new owner. And that owner then relates to how you live in terms of your obedience. There's a connection between slavery and obedience. A slave, by definition, is one who obeys another. A slave's life is consumed with the commands of his master. His identity is wrapped up in, his, in the desires of his master, not in his desires. The problem, though, with the metaphor of slavery is that it, it, it doesn't, it's not all that helpful because Paul's idea of slavery and our idea of slavery are very, very different. So let me just change the metaphor a bit. Maybe this will be more helpful. Think of it in terms of being an employee. Let's say that you're a, a barista at a local Starbucks. Okay? You arrive at work, and when you do, you clock in, and at that moment, your time is no longer yours. Somebody else owns your time. You can even say someone else owns you, but I don't want to fully say that, but someone else owns your time. And in exchange for you having someone else own your time, you receive payment. So that's part of the contractual arrangement. You give us your time, we provide you money. It would be ridiculous to show up in your Starbucks uniform, start making coffee, and then decide, you know what, I want to go over and just sit down for a little bit. And your boss is like, well, it's not your break time. I don't care, I just want to go do that. You're not going to have a job very long, right? Because there's an understanding that when you're here and you're clocked in, you have given us your time and we're then going to give you money for your time. So you can't just simply do whatever you want Instead, you are to do the bidding of your employer. In the same way that if you have a day off and you show up at work, put your Starbucks uniform on, start walking around the store cleaning things up, but you're not being paid, someone's going to assume that you're an employee. Why? Because you look like an employee, you act like an employee, and whether or not you're clocked in or not, people are going to think that you're an employee because of the way that you're acting. And so what Paul is doing here is trying to connect these ideas that ownership and actions go hand in glove. And you're supposed to act in the way that reflects the one who owns you. And yet what Paul is getting after is the fact that there are some people who act in a way that doesn't really fit with who they are. Let me illustrate this another way. Maybe this will make it even more evident. So one time I went to Target, and as I'm walking around the store, people keep asking me where certain things are in the store. Guy comes up, he goes, hey, do you know where the uh, dish soap is? And I'm like, uh, I think it's over there. He's like, all right, thanks. He walked away, and I was like, that's weird. And then somebody else walks up to me, hey, do you know where the, um, where the, the, the soda aisle is? And I'm like, yeah, it's over there. And I'm thinking, what's going on? And then I look down at what I have on, and I have a red shirt and khaki pants on. That's the problem. <laughs> so I start restocking the shelves, you know, and all this stuff. And I'm looking at myself going, oh, you goofball, you wore a Target uniform to Target, right? 
The fact of the matter is I'm not an employee, but I'm being treated like an employee. I can even act like an employee, right? Step up to the cash register. Oh, take that for free. It's free today, right? I, I have no right to do that, even though I look like it. And what Paul's point is this, is you need to reflect the one who owns you. Or to put it in another frame of reference, stop showing up at the sinful place that you used to work, acting like you still belong there. When I go to Target, I don't wear a red shirt and khaki pants anymore. I learned my lesson, right? It'd be ridiculous to show up there, having had that previous experience, just to go back to what I did before. And what Paul is saying is this. You're a different person. God's redeemed you. You're under a new owner, a new master, and you are free. You are free to defeat sin. Sin for the believer is not just an indiscretion. It's actually going back to an old slave master. It's going back to an owner who doesn't really own us anymore. Look at verse 17. Actually, let's go back up to verse 16. It says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? Hopefully now that text makes more sense in light of what we've said. you're, you're, You're showing up, you're acting like you really work here when you don't. Or you're putting on clothes that don't fit with who you really are either of sin, and this is important, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. So now Paul just upped the game because it's not just that you're going back to a a former slave master or a former way of life, but the pathway of that former life couldn't be any more different or any more tragic. Because that pathway, the former pathway, leads to death. The other pathway, obedience, leads to righteousness. So one thing that we all have to think about today is this. Which path are we on? A path of disobedience leading to death or a path of obedience leading to righteousness? Then verse 17, here's how God intervenes. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin became obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. So something happened. You heard the content of the gospel. Something came. It it opened your eyes. You saw that you were on the wrong path. And verse 18, and having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. You took off the uniform of your former self, and you put on a new uniform that fits with who you really work for, who you really belong to, and who really is the owner of your life. That's the point. What Paul is arguing here is don't you dare take off those redemption clothes and go back to your former life's clothes. The miracle of the gospel is not just that it changes a person's eternal destiny, but it changes a person's life now. So here's my question, and it's this. So does that fit with how you understand the gospel? Does that that work in your life? Meaning, does grace, is grace really working? Do you find that there are things in your life that you're pursuing and you're finding your life looking more and more righteous than it did a few months ago? Or are you going back to old patterns? Going back to former way of living? If you're not a follower of Jesus, you need to know that The Bible not only contains answers about what happens after we die, but it also contains answers about how you change today. 
the text is saying that there's two paths in life. One, that's the path related to the devil and death and unrighteousness. There's another path that relates to God and righteousness and eternal life. If you are a follower of Jesus, can I just remind you that you have taken off the former apparel of your other life, you've been placed under a new owner, and grace was meant to change your life. That sin for you and me is not just an indiscretion. It's actually living contrary to who we are and to whom we belong. That we have been set free in order so that sin could have less and less control of us. So Paul's point is this, that we have been set free in order to defeat sin. The second thing is that we have been set free in order to experience restoration. It's not only that we've been set free, but something else happens that God is able by His grace to begin the process of restoring what was broken in our lives. It's similar to what Paul says in Romans 5 and verse 20 where he says that where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So the idea is there's this, this, this brokenness in your life and then Jesus comes in and he not only fixed the brokenness but he, he doubles the grace in your life so that he begins to restore what formerly was disastrous. Look at verse 19. See again this little phrase or sentence that we looked at earlier. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. And then he says this, For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity, so this is the way you used to live, you used to present your members. And that means the individual parts of your body. means who you are as a person holistically, but the individual parts of your mind, your, your eyes, your hands, every part of you. It's the same way that you used to present your members as slaveries to impurity and to lawlessness. And then notice this. It says leading to more lawlessness. That fits with every single one of our experience with sin. And that once is never enough when it comes to sin. We want more and more and more and more. You need to know that, that there's this... The slide that, that sin takes you into. That sin is never static. See, part of the temptation is the offering of more. Or part of the temptation is your missing out. That everyone has the more and you have the less. And so you kind of wonder, what would it be like to do that? Or what would it be like to be that person? And that, that was the temptation with Eve in the Garden of Eden. The, the temptation or the essence of temptation is the temptation for more. And, and God solves that by giving us more in Christ such that the more that we want of Him and the more that we want of God is not an unrighteous thing, it's a righteous thing. So God takes the desire for more and He channels it in the right direction as opposed to channeling it by our flesh or the devil in the wrong direction. Just as you presented your members to slaves, to impurity, and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. So there's a second path that's here. Notice the hope that's, that's offered. In verse 22, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God... 
The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. So Paul now begins to talk a little bit about the matter of fruit. In verse 21, he um, even asks, But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are not ashamed? And in verse 20, he says, When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. So he's using that word free to kind of play on words. You were a slave of sin, and you were free from righteousness. And that's the lure of sin. It is that Satan and our flesh would tell us, you want to be free, don't you? If you want to be free, then just go down this path. And that is not freedom. It's not freedom at all. It leads to bondage. But that, that's, that's the problem. Is that we begin to think that true freedom means no guidelines, no rules. Freedom's never like that. I'm in a, new season of life or an old season of life again it's new but it's old i'm i'm training another son how to drive right? I have another driver 15 year old jeremiah is now behind the wheel and uh it's going well mostly and uh there's a freedom that comes with learning to drive right but you don't you're not free to do anything you want that that freedom includes additional freedoms so I have a little speech that I give to all of my sons when they take their first turn behind the wheel, and it's the "you could kill someone" speech, is what they call it. And, and, I, and I caution them and warn them: this is a this is a freedom that you have. But you know, before you had things like airsoft guns, or you know, you just would be wrestling with people. It's one thing. Now you actually have a, a vehicle, and this this vehicle could kill you. It could kill me. So there's freedom. But with that freedom comes additional responsibility. So he got done driving his first uh, route, came home, and the twins asked him how to go. And he said, oh, good, except Dad gave me the you could kill somebody speech. I'm like, oh, yeah, we know that speech. Why am I giving that speech? Because I want them to understand that there's freedom that exists, but that freedom isn't freedom from no boundaries. That freedom comes with responsibility. That freedom comes with opportunity. So too the freedom of grace. Grace isn't just free in the sense you can just do whatever you want. Grace is free that you can do what's right. Before you were in bondage, you couldn't do anything right. And the beautiful thing that happens when you come to faith in Christ is now you actually have the freedom to be able to defeat sin. So Paul would say, free to be able to do whatever you want. That's not freedom. Instead, he's arguing that there's a better fruit. Verse 21, what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? So he looks back and he says, remember your former life? Remember the things that you did, the things you're ashamed of? What fruit did you really get from all of that? And the answer is death. And look at what it says. The end of those things is death. It connects to verse 23 that we'll talk about in a moment. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, notice the change. The fruit you get, you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Notice that there's two things, both sanctification and eternal life. So it's not just eternal life, but it also means that it works now in the present. The challenge is, though, that we often don't realize the beauty and the power of what the gospel can mean in our individual lives. And we don't see the connection between the gospel and how we live, nor do other people see the connection between the gospel and how we live. 
The vision of what it, the vision of what it means to be a Christian is this: that it means to be justified by faith. It means to live in the realm of grace, such that we've been granted full immunity from the wrath of God. It means that Jesus absorbs our punishment for sin; that we have been granted the righteousness of Christ. It means that we have been saved and that we have been granted eternal life. But it also means that as a result of all of those positional realities, we have the ability to live in a way now that fits with how God would want us to live. It means that while we still live in a broken world, while we still experience the imperfections and the groaning of a world that's lost its way, that there are little pockets of people who are expressing what Jesus prayed, Lord, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There are little pockets of people all over the world who not only know where they're going when they die, but they know how to live right now. It creates this, this gospel creates people that rather than be filled with immorality, impurity, and sensuality, they're filled with love and joy and peace. Rather than people being filled with enmity and strife and jealousy and fits of anger, they're filled with patience and kindness and goodness rather than being filled with rivalries and dissensions and envying they're filled with gentleness and self-control you see you know what christianity is christianity is a partial restoration right now of what god ordained humanity was supposed to be like it's the restoration partially of the way that god intended for us to live a few months ago, I asked one of our church members, a young woman named Katie Kronberg, if she could summarize the message of Romans 6 in a poem. And here's what she came up with. This is really helpful. It's called Ransomed Arise. Stand tall, O servant of the King. Cast aside these earthly chains. Arise, for darkness holds no claim on ransomed lives called from the grave. Hell may tempt our souls to doubt the power that now within us dwells, the past Christ nailed upon that hill, so let us daily die to self. Boldly we will storm the dark, breaking strongholds in his name. We know our souls belong to him. Sin will fall where Jesus reigns. Rise up, O soul, against the dark. Once chained, now clad in victory, rebelling against the enemy, strength is found in the risen King. Boy, I hope that describes your life. I hope it describes your experience of grace. Because verse 23 wraps up this section, and it says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Historically, we think of this passage verse 23, as a great evangelistic passage. And at one level, it is. But it's also in the context of sanctification. Why is it in the context of sanctification? It's here because it affirms that there are two paths in life. There are two masters. The two masters are God and sin. The effects are eternal life and death. And the contrast is between gift and wages. Understand what the Bible is saying here is that those who are pursuing righteousness are those who have been invaded by God's grace. God is giving to them eternal life. He's giving to them righteousness. And on the other hand, sin doesn't just have consequences. You need to understand something. 
when you fall into sin, when you agree to do what sin wants you to do, sin pays you. Sin pays you. Sin gives you wages, not just consequences. Sin offers to you wages. And at first, those wages seem like they are freedom. It seems like it's pleasure. It seems like it's joy. And the reality is the wages that sin pays you is death. And that's the tragic irony. The enemy offers to you freedom, pleasure, Surely you don't want to be left out. You want to be just like everybody else, don't you? And the reality is he, he leaves you with your wages, which is death, brokenness in this world, and eternal death in the next. So how does that relate now to the matter of global missions? How, how does this relate to reaching unreached peoples? The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. Paul's Paul's final thought here is about the dominion of grace and what it means to live under the dominion of grace. And that, this idea of being under the dominion of grace got me thinking, what if sanctification was actually more closely tied to evangelism and reaching unreached people than what we really think? Or maybe the question would better be put this way, what what does sanctification have to do with global evangelism? Let me give you three thoughts. First would be this, that it seems that sanctification, becoming more and more Christ-like, bearing more of the fruit of the Spirit, becoming more God-like in our actions, becoming godly, it seems to me that if sanctification is really working, if it's really working, then we ought to be concerned about people living in spiritual darkness. If not, if we don't care, if we're just worried about me and my world and what's up with me and my little family and, and, and my particular needs, if it's all about me, then the question is, is sanctification really happening? You see, I don't think statistics or, or fairness, like it's not fair that they haven't heard, or guilt, don't you feel bad that they haven't heard? I don't think those things are a sufficient motivator. To me, the motivator that propels us into missions is that as we become more and more like Jesus, we have a heart that's created, a heart that God gives, that we're burdened and we feel things because God is making us new. The the other pathway is a pathway of self-centeredness. And who cares? I don't even see them. I don't even know where they are. So why would anybody even be concerned about people they've never seen? You know why? Because something about their heart is different because of the invasion of God's grace. That's why. So if you come to reach and you have like zero concern for missions, it's just like not even on your radar, I would tell you, you don't have a missiological problem. You have a sanctification problem. A couple weeks ago, Nate returned from a visit to a country that borders Syria. And they're dealing with an enormous an enormous refugee problem in that country. And there's a ministry that provides a month's worth of food to Muslim families that have fled Syria. And they're Christians providing food to Muslims. And Nate told us the story of a Muslim Muslim man who asked one of the workers a very insightful and telling question. He asked him, Why are you Christians helping us Muslims? We are your enemies. What a great question. 
And the reason he's asking the question is because there are Christians who are demonstrating the love of Christ by helping people in need in order to show them the beauty of God's grace. And then that leads to other conversations about the gospel, about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It seems like godly, righteous, fruit-bearing people will have a passion to reach people with the gospel because it fits with what it means to be a sanctified follower of Jesus. So sanctification should lead us to be concerned about people in spiritual darkness. Here's the second thing. It seems that if we understand Romans chapter 6, then this idea of sanctification should be in the forefront of our minds and hearts that there is hope for people not just in their future, there is hope for people right now. That there are people around the world who woke up today and everything about their existence is underneath the banner of I have to perform, I have to work, I have to do in order for Allah to be pleased with me. If you're a Muslim, you have to pray five times a day. You have to give two and a half percent of your income. You have to help the poor and the needy to fast during the month of Ramadan and visit Mecca at least once in your lifetime if you're able to. And if you don't do all of these things, you won't receive the favor of Allah. And when you die, you will be tormented. And so your whole life, you live under this fear of I've got to work, I've got to work, I've got to work, I've got got to pull myself up by my bootstraps. If I'm a Hindu, I have to do karma and do good deeds so that my next reincarnation will be better. So my entire life is spent doing all these good deeds in the fear that if I don't do them and don't measure up, then the next reincarnation, I'm going to be a mosquito or something, right? So I'm living my whole life in fear of having a regressive reincarnation. What... What kind of life is that? I mean, not even just the eternal destiny of those people that are on the line, but what does that life look like like right now? There's nothing but fear and bondage and performance that's tied up into that. And there are people, all 2.7 billion people, not only who are going to hell, but today woke up and are in fear and don't know what it means to be free. Well, in the, in the Caspian region a few years ago, I had lunch with two Muslim students who had watched a, a, a CD of one of our services, and we were just talking about their observations. And, and so I asked them, so what was, what was unusual to you about our services? And they said, you sing so much. And I said, why was that unusual to you? And they said, because we don't sing. You don't sing at a mosque. And why would you sing in a mosque? You're there to do your duty. You're not there to to celebrate freedom. You're not there to rejoice in how much you've been loved. You're, You're there to do what you must do. And so the motivation for global missions is not just to save people from hell in the future. It's to set them free now. It's to make people who won't sing about God's grace to sing. It's about helping them to see the beauty of what it means to be free, not only in the future, but what it means to be free today and to be free right now. And then here's the third thing. If Romans 6 is lived out, then true cultural transformation is possible as the gospel is known and as it is lived. In other words, if you understand the gospel and you begin to live out that gospel the effect on culture is going to be significant. Last week I listened to a presentation by a leader of our Cambodian partnership. 
And she became emotional as she talked about the sick reality of human trafficking in Southeast Asia. And as she was talking about this, it just seemed so right that a follower of Jesus would be deeply grieved over that kind of issue. But what do you do? I mean, at one level, there's a lot of things you can do practically, like you can educate families, you can set up shelters, you can work to change laws in a country, you can find ways to rescue people that are literally enslaved. But you know what ultimately is needed? What ultimately is needed is a heart change where impurity is replaced with love, where deception is replaced with truth, where violence is replaced with gentleness, and where fear is replaced with joy, not just in the future, but like right now, as Christ comes and a whole heart is transformed and changed. And when there's enough people who begin to believe that message and live that out, and you have to have both, you can't just believe it, you have to live it. When those two things combine and little clusters of people get more and more and more, a tipping point is reached and an entire nation, a country, a city, a little community can be changed as gospel-oriented people move into an area and say this is wrong and something needs to be done because this doesn't fit with the way God intended life to be. And that's what the gospel can do. It's a gospel that must not just be preached because people are on their way to a Christless eternity, but it's also because people are living in a Christless reality right now that is broken and full of bondage. You see, when When Romans 6 is lived out, church, it's not only redemptive, it's actually revolutionary. And so I just want to challenge you, and I thought about this for myself, how how am I, how are we living out Romans chapter 6? Is the reality of your godliness transforming your neighborhood, transforming your home, transforming your office? Does it affect the way that you see the world? Or is Christianity just something, I know where I'm going when I die. That is not a fully orbed Christianity. Christianity is your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven right now. Do it in me and through me because I know I have been granted this grace and this grace has now become my life. I've got a new owner and I have a new pathway. And whereas once I used to serve sin and the payment of that sin was death, now instead the free gift of God has come to me through Jesus and it's eternal life and it changes how I live and what I do and who I am. And when people live like that, they have a heart for the world and they change the world because they want to see grace become the revolution. Let's pray. Father, would you help us today to be the kind of people who live out the reality of this passage the kind of people who are moved not just because of eternal destinies but the kind of people who are moved because of the grace of God that can change our life even now Lord, would you make us a godly people? Would you make us a holy people? Would you make our hearts beat for what you beat for? Where once impurity reigned, would you let love reign? Where once fighting and dissensions reigned, would you let peace reign? So the people around us would just 
see the difference that the light of the gospel makes? And, Lord, would you give us a heart for people around the world today who've woken up and they have to work really hard because they think everything they do today is about them and trying to make their own way to you. Oh, Lord, thank you that in grace and through Christ you've made a different way. So help us to live in light of it and to welcome the nations into it. We pray this in the beautiful and matchless name of Jesus. Amen.